No taxation without representation. 200 years of exploitation in the capital of this nation. No representation in the capital of this nation. 200 years of exploitation. Give the people their right to vote. Someone asked me, was it true? The voting rights of the district were long overdue. That was Sweet Honey in the Rock with Give the People Their Right to Vote. Hello and welcome to Shadow Politics, an hour-long grassroots talk show, which will attempt to shine a light on the issues that you care about. I'm your host, United States Senator Michael D. Brown, coming to you live from the District of Columbia. America's Last Colony. I'm joined by my co-host, Maria Sanchez, and together we hope our show will start a dialogue with America about the issues that are important to you and affect the lives of all of us. You can feel free to call in and be part of the conversation at 888-627-6008. We have a very special guest tonight, but before I introduce her, let me just say a couple of quick things. Uh, First of all, I went to a memorial service today, this afternoon, a remembrance um, for uh, a woman here in Washington who um, did just an an incredible work in the um, statehood movement. Uh, Her name was Faith. She ran for mayor um, six times. Uh, and she was just an amazing person. She was a Broadway celebrity, friend of Marlon Brando's, uh, starred with Natalie Wood in the, the movie Gypsy. Uh, but she was most of most of all to the people of Washington, D.C., an activist. So a shout out to uh, Faith Dane Kranich uh, for all the work she did. Uh, and also, I want to say Maria is not with us tonight. She had a family emergency, so we wish her all the best. But who we do have with us tonight is L. Rochford, who is a, a graduate student at Purdue University in Indiana, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. And she's a sociologist. And among other, she's done amazing things that we're going to talk about on the show. She's done some amazing research. And I'm so happy to have her on the show. Uh, uh, Elle, are you with us? I am. Thanks so much. That's an incredibly kind introduction. Oh, no, come on. You've done some really interesting work. I was a social science major uh, and uh, knew lots of sociologists. I went to a school with a really good uh, um, social work program. So when I was in graduate school, I uh, knew a whole lot of people working on their masters in in social work. And uh, I know I saw your Vita, and I know that you studied abroad in Paris maybe with one of my professors from the University of Maryland. That was my my alma mater. Um, so uh, I'm excited to have you on the show because we don't get to talk to sociologists very much on this show. We talk to politicians and other people, but not really people that study uh, society in the way social scientists do. So we're, I'm excited to have you. And the first thing I want to talk to you about uh, is the study uh, that you did with Rachel Einhauer uh, about how uh, marches tend to make people, uh, you know, set them on the path of social activism. This is very important to us because, as you probably know, D.C. has no voting members of Congress, so my job is to get statehood for the district, and we do a lot of um, uh protesting and lobbying, but we haven't done as many marches as we used to. We used to do a whole lot of marches, and I think we're suffering from that. So please tell us what you found out in your study. Sure, absolutely. Um, So I think I'd be remiss. So we didn't establish that marches um, kind of involve people more deeply in activism. Uh, It's it's one of those things where... uh, as an academic, I have to disclaimer, disclaimer, disclaimer. So what our study looked at was the Women's March in 2017 didn't stop 
um, it was an event, but it was also an ongoing organizing process. So what we looked at is how did people continue marching uh, and how did people who were unable to march in uh, physical space or who weren't able to march in D.C., how did they continue the movement? So we look at how people participated in the 600 or so marches outside of D.C., and we looked at the use of social media. Uh, So people who couldn't attend the march could still support the march on the Internet. Uh, But there's a ton of really great research that shows that going to a march, even a march that maybe the media would say is a failed march, really does get people more involved, and it has a lot more outcomes than just the turnout of the march. Uh, We see this with Occupy. The movement of Occupy was, at the time, kind of deemed a failure. But we're seeing now, five, ten years out, people who participated in Occupy have created these really meaningful networks, and they've shared protest strategies. So uh, attending a march does a lot more than just uh, give a great visual, right? It's not just the photos of the crowds. It's the people you meet and the ideas you're exposed to. Well, you know, uh, first of all, I find this not unusual in that I have been in politics for 40 years, and many of the people that I've met in elected office, especially in local elected office, got involved on some you know, very like neighborhood issue. You know, I've met, I can't tell you the members of Congress that I've met, the the council members that I've met who started out because there was a problem at their kid's school or there was a problem in the neighborhood that they became an activist about. And that led, you know, their activism led them to, you know, run for commissioner. And once they were elected commissioner, they ran for city council. And once they ran for city council, they, you know, they just moved on and on and on. I think it brings out something in people uh, when they get involved. But, you know, again, I would, I would ask you what implications this may have for my work because my problem is that 80% of America thinks that we should have the same rights everybody else does, but 79% of America thinks we already do. So getting the word out is very important to me. And my question to you would be, is this phenomenon that you talk about, about people being more engaged, is that a result of the fact that we have these social networks now um, on the internet that we didn't have 30 years ago? Yeah. So I think there's a couple things there. I think um, social media doesn't necessarily change the way people interact, but it makes it a lot faster. So social media is a great way to network. Uh, It's a great way to address misinformation, but it's also a really powerful misinformation machine. So I think part of it, when it comes to D.C. statehood uh, and thinking about the Women's March and reproductive health, there's so much misinformation out there or the public completely has the wrong uh, facts about what's actually happening. Uh, So I think you can use social media really effectively to to address that misinformation, but you're also combating the misinformation online, which is just doubling in size. Yeah. Yeah, it really does seem to be a double-edged sword, not so much with my issue, but with a lot of other issues, issues that impact the District of Columbia like guns. Um, How important is the issue? Have you done any research on that? My wife and uh, two daughters are apoplectic about what's happened in Texas. Uh, every woman that I've talked to, liberal woman I've talked to in the last two weeks has brought it up to me. This seems to be a galvanizing moment. And, and actually, I heard a Republican politician on CNN say that he thought that the, the, the law, uh, the Texas law was not only draconian, but it was a, uh, a strategic mistake because it would act to galvanize women. 
Uh, is how important is the issue to getting people out there? Oh, I think it's essential. I also think uh, for a really long time, people who presented as progressive have used the threat of this being ripped out from under us as a fundraising tactic. Right. And because it was a really successful fundraising tactic, they didn't necessarily take the steps to protect it when it wasn't under dire threat. And for some populations, it's always been under dire threat. I mean, for, mm -hmm. for people who are low income, uh, the Hyde Amendment has put this right under dire threat since the 70s. Um, so I think part of the problem is that people will talk about it as a dire threat but either they don't really believe it could be overturned, uh, which is, I think, a mistake to gamble that way, uh, or they don't have a vested stake. They're not really in solidarity with the people that need this. Uh, so I think there's a lot going on with how it could have been protected and how it's not been protected. Uh, but I think this issue really gets at the ways that our democracy is not necessarily as democratic as we want it to be. I think this also uh, looks at your issue as well, where uh, conservative estimates show that something like 54% of Americans support legal abortion. Depending on how you word the question, that number gets into the yes. 70s. 70% of Americans support access to abortion. Yes. So what is it about the way our government works that those beliefs and those opinions in the public are not reflected in our laws? Well, I've got to say, that's a, an important question that I have for you as well. You know, my wife calls me one of the world's great theoretical feminists that I believe all women should be equal except for her and my two daughters. You know, and there, there's some there's some truth to that. Right. Because these are really, really hard things. You know, this whole socialization that we're all brought up with. Uh, me much further before you, but that, that these things, they're very, very hard to get rid of. And, you know, women, we've got the Equal Rights Amendment out there. I'm 68 years old. I worked on it when I was in college. It's still not a law. And more women vote than men. So how, have you done any research on how, um, that powerful socialization of women uh, in our society holds them back. Because obviously, if if women wanted to change this, they have the power to change it in a democracy. And we saw lots of women that voted for Donald Trump. So what is it about the way we socialize women? Do they... So, sure. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I'm sorry. Cut you off there. Um, well, so I think, I think the elephant in the room there is, is white women, right? We saw a huge portion of white women voting for Donald Trump. So you can't, you can't separate race and gender. I think there's a way we socialize kind of white Americans. Uh, and so you see women of color have been advocating for a long time for a lot of the policies that uh, are more progressive. And a lot of women of color are disenfranchised or they can't take off work. So I, I think we have to be careful when we say, why aren't women doing things when what we mean is, you know, white women tend to vote against these things. And that's not, um, not a blanket statement, right? Because there are different uh, religious groups or different ethnicities that fall on all kinds of sides of the, the political spectrum. But particularly when we talk about Donald Trump, we're talking about white women voting in mass for him. Well, is that because white women don't suffer the same um, consequences of these laws as women of color? You know, I, I, I one thing that stands out in the Equal Rights Amendment to me is that uh, there was one group of people that voted to ratify it in every single case without exception when it was first put out there in states where it was ratified, and that was African-American legislators. And I always felt that they stood behind it because they knew how important it was to have that mention of women in the Constitution, since they fought so hard for, uh, you know, everything from the 14th Amendment to the Voting Rights and Civil Rights Act. 
Um, so is that, you think, a problem? White women just, it's just not as, uh, it, it, it's just not as much a, these, these laws are just not as much a problem for a lot of white women. You think that's? I mean, yeah, do you have um, any? I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I'm, I'm smiling because that's a lot of what my dissertation is about is uh, intersectional solidarity. Uh, so it's the idea that um, white women have to do a lot more work to engage in solidarity with other groups because other groups, particularly when we talk about reproductive rights and reproductive health, other racial groups are, are way more at risk. Um, so, and, and to quote Twitter, right, hashtag not all white women, right? But there is... Um, an element of race that we can't ignore when we talk about um, voting patterns, when we talk about uh, who has stakes and what. But traditionally, um, reproductive health organizations, so not the movement, but um, these very large kind of national organizations have been historically white, uh, run by white women. And so they either don't take seriously the concerns of women of color and uh, non-binary people of color, um, or that's not really uh, going to help their bottom line, right? That's not going to help their fundraising efforts. So there's not the same stake um, from both these organizations that will claim to fight for all women, right? They're really focusing on the most sympathetic cases and middle-class white sensibilities. Uh, and we're seeing something really different with this most recent Women's March, which was led by a coalition, was um, uh, the leadership board is incredibly diverse. Uh, women of color were really allowed to lead this. And this most recent Women's March really focused on the idea that women of color and non-binary and transmasculine people of color face different risks and have different barriers to abortion. So we are seeing the women's movement really thinking about critically the role of white women uh, in the national movement and what that means. Well, and, and, and isn't that, you know, uh, attitude that you just talked about, isn't that a fallacy? I mean, we see it, we see it in our movement with statehood. This really does affect people outside the district of Columbia. And I would argue that uh, laws that work against women of color really work against all women, uh, whether they, they acknowledge it or not, you know. Uh, um, and, and what is it that we need to do to get white women engaged, to get them to understand that, that, you know, you know one thing that always bothered me about the women's movement, and I don't know how you feel about this, uh, is that they would talk, again, when it comes to the ERA, about how women made 78 cents on the dollar and how that was bad for women. And they never talked about how it was bad for men. You know, if my wife makes 78 cents on a dollar, uh, that's, uh, you know, 22 cents on a dollar that my family loses. Uh, I lose it, she loses it, my kids lose it. Uh, but they never focused on that. Do we need to refocus, especially if you think, as I think many feminists do, that re reproductive justice is the floor of the movement? Somebody commented that in the Washington Post yesterday, that it wasn't the ceiling, it was the floor, and, and, and that you couldn't go, you know, that that was the basis on which much, many other problems for women uh, you know, are, are, are supported. So uh, do we need to change the message, change the narrative um, so that, you know, people see we're all in this together? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'd push back on, there's a ton of feminist work about how patriarchy harms men. There's a lot about the wage gap, um, about employment, right? Men don't feel that they can take paternity leave, for instance, right? There's a ton of feminist writing about that exact issue of women in the workplace and men in the workplace and how it affects men. 
Uh, there's a lot of feminist work about men in the family and uh, particularly about custody battles and men and men's rights. So there is a lot of feminist work on men. Um, so I do. I just wanted to push back on that one point, is that that messaging does exist out there, but it's certainly um, never become popular. And whether that's because feminists aren't pushing it or because mainstream society isn't interested in it, I think it's hard to tell. Um, can you remember yeah, what your other question was? And well, and, and and that is a real problem, right? As as the social scientist Jurgen Habermas pointed out in his research, there's always a gap between theory and practice. So how do we get that research, you know, in front of the American people? Because I don't think that's the face of the movement. Uh, maybe I'm wrong about that. Uh, I think a sociologist like you who studies these things certainly is in touch with that kind of information. But I don't know the general public is, and I don't know how we change the narrative so that so that, you know, uh, these groups embrace that and make that more of the message. And as far as my second question goes, you're talking to an old guy, so I've already forgotten what it is. Well, <laughs> we'll have to move on. But, but you know, I wonder how we change the narrative to, um, you know, to, to make that, bring that out front. Because, look, I think you're so right about the white woman thing. And... Uh, we fought on the same basis. It's, a, it's like a parallel universe that we're in. Uh, we fought for so many years that this is not right. Statehood, I'm referencing, is not right. And it's unfair and it's undemocratic. And that's not what the founding fathers wanted. And taxation without representation is wrong. But nobody really cares. You know, we have to find more practical and what we've tried to do is move on to say, look, if you want to protect abortion, if you want to attack, protect a woman's right or rights or a progressive agenda, the best thing you can do is send two progressive senators from the District of Columbia into the United States Senate and give them a, them a vote. The District of Columbia is one of the most progressive uh, cities in America. So the best you can do for yourself is to send uh, two more progressives. Imagine what, what a difference they'd make today. We wouldn't, we wouldn't all be uh, fixated on our friend Joe Manchin or, or, <laughs> or, or his pal uh, Senator Sinema if we had two more Democrats from D.C. Um, so what do we do with the movement? You know, how do we make people feel that in the women's movement that look, man, if your wife makes 22 cents more an hour, that helps you. It helps your kids. It helps. I mean, is I understand the fairness thing, but that's just not enough. I think I'm sorry. What do you think? That's what I yeah, about. What so, do you think. No, I think there's, there's so much there. Um, I think there are two things going on. Um, the first is that there's so much in, uh, so I, I'm getting my PhD in social movements, right? And so many social movements spend so much time and energy and resource and money on how to get people to believe the thing that they are saying is important is important. And I am a researcher, but I'm also a teacher, and so something you learn when you're a teacher uh, is that if a student's not understanding something, you have to say it a different way. You have to keep saying it in different ways until people understand what, what you already know. Uh, so when you know something is important, you just have to find the right hook uh, to get your audience in. And a lot of movements have to pivot over and over again until something really lands. So in the women's movement, there was all this framing around choice. Do you want to be pro-choice? This is the movement of choice. And a lot of women of color uh, kind of approached the movement and said, listen, if you can't afford it, if you can't uh, safely access it, if you can't geographically get to a clinic, you don't have a choice about your pregnancy. And so what we really need is reproductive freedom and reproductive justice. And so women of color were saying this in the 90s. 
And now we've completely rebranded this movement for uh, access to abortion, this movement for reproductive health, as the movement for reproductive justice. So part of it is listening to and paying attention to the actual constituents of your movement and then what's popular at the time. So in the 90s, the pro-choice framing was really popular among middle-class white people. And that's who these larger organizations were trying to target for fundraising efforts and for kind of political power. Uh, but choice really wasn't a resonant frame. Uh, people on the ground didn't really experience choices. And so eventually that frame really fell out of favor with people. And so every movement goes through this where you know what you want as the end goal. It's just really difficult to find or tap into what the public needs to hear for it to resonate with them. Well, first of all, God bless you for uh, taking that approach to teaching that you actually need to teach. Because I, I, I'll tell you, I had a lot of professors, in, especially in graduate school, that uh, thought they put the information out there and it was your job to get it. It wasn't their job to give it to you. And, and, and some of them were amazing. You would, read, you would read a book that they'd written and said, wow this guy's really brilliant or this woman's really brilliant, but they can't teach worth a damn. You know, they, they, they weren't right. They weren't worried about teaching. They were just worried about, you know, the information. And if you can't relay the information to your students, you know, what good is it? So uh, I really appreciate uh, you having that attitude. My wife is a, uh, is a high school librarian, and, and she is very much a teacher as well. Uh, she cares God more about it. what the kids learn. Yeah, absolutely. God bless everybody that has that uh, attitude, you know. Um, I had some, some... Well, I think as, as a practice, though, it's, that's why we have the state of misinformation we have. It's a lot of scientists produce research, and they think the research is solid, so people will get what I need. But there, there's no sense that we need to translate our research or our theory to a general audience. And your work doesn't speak for itself. Uh, no matter how objective it is, no matter how sound the, the methodology behind it, if you are not highly trained, statistics is like another language. And scientists are not being good translators. Yeah, absolutely. And and look, all you got to do is turn on TV and listen to the fact that 99% of the people ended up in the hospital these days are unvaccinated. And then uh, uh, hearing that millions and millions of people are refusing to be unvaccinated. Uh, I've always felt in, 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 in politics that people really don't seek out the truth as much as they seek out uh, information that supports their prejudices or, or, or how they feel already, for example. You know, I, I was lucky that I came from a family where my father was singularly the most egalitarian person I've ever met in my entire life, but my a generation removed, my grandparents, they believed every stereotype about every group. So my grandmother, if an African-American gave my grandmother a kidney, she wouldn't remember it. But she remembered every black person she ever saw cash a welfare check in a liquor store. You know what I mean? Because that supported her misconception of what African-Americans were. And I think we so look for that. We don't look for the truth. We just look for somebody else saying, yeah, you're right. Donald Trump was a great, you know, he wasn't a misogynist. I mean, how you can think that, I don't know. But I can tell you, I've gotten into plenty of arguments with people that have that, that opinion of them. And uh, so, yeah, so I think it's really important to figure out a way to change those data points into things that matter to people. And, and 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 increase their understanding of things. Speaking that now, this is a great segue to this. I read in your 
uh, uh, Vita that uh, you have done work on uh, socialized body markers. And I said to my, my assistant, who was working with you because I'm such an old geezer. I said, what in the hell is a, is a, a racialized body marker? So can you explain that to me and, and tell me why those are important? Absolutely. Uh, well, and I, I explained to her too, it is a, an incredibly complicated phrasing that's for a very academic market, but essentially what I was looking at is um, in the U.S., uh, in, in most cultures, we would say that children are invaluable. There, there is no price we could put on a child. Children are precious. Uh, but there are all kinds of ways where we actually do put literal dollar amounts to children. And so I was looking at that tension, and um, there are a couple different ways you can look at this, right? Uh, there are insurance policies. Um, there are all kinds of like potential earning algorithms you can look at. But what I looked at was intercountry adoption. And uh, what you find, and you find this in a number of different places, uh, is that white children uh, cost more. There's a, there's a literal dollar amount you can trace to trying to adopt. And children who are white are more expensive to adopt on the international uh, adoption uh, system than uh, children who are darker. And it, it is very frustrating because it follows a very clear line of children who are white, Asian, Latinx, right, and then lighter skinned are all more expensive. And as you go down the line, you see uh, children who are darker skinned or black are less expensive to adopt. There are lower fees. Um, and you can see this, too, in the demands for children, right? So white couples uh, typically want white or lighter-skinned children. And so um, what I looked at was people say and deeply believe and deeply feel that children are priceless. But then we are willing to put prices on them. And those prices do line up with a racial prejudice. Uh, so that's what it means with uh, a racialized body market is that there are all kinds of ways we assign value to bodies, and those values um, are inflated or deflated based on racism. Uh, so it's very it's it's um, not pleasant work, I would say. Yeah, I can imagine, and, and again, a lot of that I would imagine is cultural and 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 to our our socialization process, you know, because we all talk about children like they're priceless, but I can tell you from a, from, from a political standpoint, the first thing we cut is education and programs to children when times get hard, you know. We cut out things like music and art and extracurricular activities and, you know, the things that really help them grow and develop and become individuals. So, we talk to talk more than we walk the walk. And I think that's, you know, because we're supposed to, we're supposed to think that children are wonderful. And let me just say for my audience, put this disclaimer out there. I love dearly all three of my children, but they're a bad investment. If you're invested, <laughs> yeah. in, you know, if you're planning on getting a return for your money, I haven't, I haven't seen any yet. So I still got my fingers crossed. No, you know, obviously I'm trying to be a little tongue-in-cheek, but, but, but it's true. We talk about them uh, as our most precious resource, but certainly we don't act that way. Um, wow. uh, and, and almost all of those cuts are disproportionately in black neighborhoods, black school districts. Yeah, absolutely. Cuts to black schools, disproportionate to white schools. Uh, and, and that makes it all the more interesting that a lot of these anti-abortion activists will say uh, that abortion is racist, right, or that reproductive health care is racist, but they only mean abortion, right? They don't mean giving child care to these areas. They don't mean better schools in black neighborhoods, and they don't mean fixing the black mortality rate when it comes to maternal and infant mortality, Um 
So unfortunately, it always comes back to racial discrimination. It always comes back to reproductive justice, uh, at least on my end. Yeah, I can believe that's true. And we certainly have that here. You know, again, Washington, D.C. is this incredibly progressive place. But, you know, uh, the kids that went to school with my children ended up at Princeton, Yale, Harvard, Purdue, you know, schools like that. My, my kid, my daughter, went. one went to DePaul, the other went to the University of Illinois. But, but um, um, in the black neighborhood, in the poor neighborhood, in Anacostia in Washington, when I first selected, 51% of the kids didn't graduate from high school. I mean, it was just amazing to me that on the first day of school, your principal could say to you, uh, you've got more of a chance of not graduating than you do of graduating. Uh, and... Um, you know, we had the lowest SAT scores in America. So when kids in my daughter's schools and my son's school were, were getting accepted by the best universities in, in America, how low did the scores have to be in the bad schools to pull the mean that far down? Uh, you know, it really is a tale of two cities in Washington. And you're right. They don't want to put money into those programs. Um, they don't want to put money into programs that help uh, people in the poorer neighborhoods. Uh, they want to put in more teachers and more books, but they don't understand all the social problems that are holding people back. Nobody ever dropped out of high school because they couldn't do the work. They've dropped out of high school because of other reasons and, and many reasons that they, that they, uh, that they don't um, – you know, people don't recognize and they don't try to uh, resolve the problems that, that are associated with them. I'm sorry, you got me up on my soapbox. So now I'm getting <laughs> down. Uh, let's talk about yesterday's march for a minute. Yesterday's march, we saw marches in D.C., Chicago, New York City, uh, a bunch of other places. But what would your, given your research and your background, what do you think accounts for the fact that We've got from millions of women after Donald Trump was elected to to two thousands of women. There's, there's really been well, a drop off. Sure, sure. I mean, I, I would say I I don't think we will ever see a march like we saw in 2017. I don't know that we need to see another march like like uh, 2017 in the sense that I think that march tapped into a lot of frustration and rage and fear, and it turned out a lot of people. Um, I would say the organizers of the 2021 march did not want those numbers, right? Uh, we are still very much in a pandemic, and the pandemic is affecting disproportionately the same women they're trying to advocate for. So in order to protect black and brown women and indigenous women who are dying disproportionately of COVID, right, they want to take more measures to thin out the crowd. Uh, so number one, I think it wasn't supposed to be as big as the 2017 March. And that's not because there's less interest, I think. Um, I think the 2017 March funneled a lot of people into other orgs and coalitions um, there was something like 90 organizations that were a part of this 2021 march. And so maybe women who weren't participating were working for those organizations. Um, in the, what is it, four or five years, right, uh, since that first march, a lot of the coalition organizations have split off from uh, the Women's March, the national organization. And that's really normal and healthy for a movement, right? So there might be groups that have, slightly different politics that no longer want to be a part of this. So they're off doing their own work. Uh, so you won't have those people, right? Because they're going to splinter off doing different things. Uh, but even with these kind of smaller numbers, uh, they expected or estimated 20,000 people in LA alone, 10,000 in DC. And so even when we're talking about thousands, right, we're not talking about small demonstrations. Well, yeah, that's good. And that's what we want in the end, is it not? We don't want uh, 
500,000 people in Washington as much as we want uh, 50,000 people in 10 different states, right? We want a movement that's broad at its base. Um, So uh, I guess that's a good thing. Well, let me ask you. you, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. ahead. uh, I'm realizing I have it down even. So even though the number of people in D.C. especially, but worldwide was down, we went from 600 sister marches in cities across the world in 2017 to 650. So the number of marches and the number of cities being hit are increasing, even if the total number of protesters is decreasing. Does the movement have to adjust as the environment adjusts, uh, as the environment changes? I mean, what women were mad about after Trump has probably changed a little bit to what they're mad about now. My daughters, for example, who are, uh, you know, uh, still in their 20s, um, they're worried about jobs. They're worried about COVID. They're worried about, not that women haven't always been worried about jobs, but um, does the movement have to adjust to account for these things to stay relevant? Yeah, well, I think, well, the grim grim part of this is the women's movement will be relevant for a very long time because women face a lot of obstacles. Um, But I I think it's one of those things that's going to be permanently relevant because there are always new attacks on reproductive freedom, on women's freedoms. We're not very much closer to addressing uh, income inequalities by gender. We're certainly not close to uh, gender and race inequalities, right? Uh, So I don't see the movement losing steam anytime soon. You might see periods where it's less active and more active. Um, but every movement is going to have to pivot, is going to change um, and, and address kind of the newest things coming along. Uh, I think COVID-19 has really highlighted how women are disadvantaged in the workplaces. I think we see a huge gap in who was doing the child care uh, when everyone went to work from home. Uh, I think you see a huge gap in who was an essential worker, right? Uh, women were really disproportionately represented in a lot of the frontline work during COVID. Um, so I think, I think uh, being a woman is, is complicated, right? And there are lots of different identities that make it harder or less hard to be a woman. So the movement's going to address those things because it's seeking constantly to be more intersectional and to express more solidarity with more groups. So we're seeing the Women's March in particular and the women's movement in general try to expand to include more people and more issues. Well, you know, that's one of the reasons that uh, I was so intrigued by your research on marches was that, uh, you know, we really it's always been um, uh, an objective of mine to increase the amount of social um, disobedience that we do here in Washington, because I think it does uh, bring young people into the uh, into the fold and new people into the fold, and that's really important for us because we've been saying the same thing for 210 years and it hasn't worked yet. So we need some new people with new ideas and new energy and new, you know, so uh, so that our our movement. Uh, can can change to be more relevant and more effective. And I really see that as uh, something that we need to accomplish and something that marches might help us accomplish. Uh, let me ask marches you. Marches and TikTok. I would say get on TikTok. TikTok. I mean, now you're talking about, you know, my doc, my all three of my kids, I'm sure, are on TikTok, but I don't understand. I don't understand it, and you know, and 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 actually, I try to get my I try to get my daughter, who's a dancer and a performer. She performs with Second City Theater as an amateur, but she's a performer to do something with me at TikTok. And she said, "Dad, I have a reputation. I can't just go out there and you know be willy nilly, right?" And I'm like, "What? I'm a United States senator." And she's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." Whatever, but I have a reputation 
you know, people expect a certain standard from me that, you know, obviously she felt I wasn't up to. So I'm not sure how, how I can get on TikTok, but, but I think that's probably good advice. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to try it. Let me just ask you, though, are you as afraid, you know, when I was in studying, when I was in graduate school studying social science, the book that every one of the books that everybody had to read was George Orwell's 1984. How how dangerous do you see the whole online activism being? I mean, it, it all seems so 1984-esque to me, you know, that that there are people that are controlling the flow of information and that you can find, instead of going through legitimate channels, you can find any, any idea you have in your head Regardless of how ridiculous it is, I guarantee you, you can find people on the Internet that support it. So how dangerous do you think this is to our political culture? Yeah, well, I think that the grim thing is that the Internet is as dangerous as its users. So uh, it is as dangerous as the uh, Americans who are getting their information from it, right? Uh, there's a tendency to seek out information that confirms what you already believe. Um, we call it, it's confirmation bias, right? We grant right. way more weight to what we already think is true. Right. Um, but I think I think the thing about the internet is it's just another tool. It's just another medium. It is we're having the same conversations about social media that we had about television, or that we had about radio, or that we had about the printing press. The problem is that social media works on a scale that dwarfs those other technologies, right? This is so much faster paced. Um, so there's no solid answer I can give you because we are experiencing a kind of technological explosion that you you really can't predict out of, right? Our models aren't doing very well on it. Um, but I think for every bad thing on the internet, there is at least one good thing on the internet, right? We're seeing, um, for instance, black activists are able to network much better, right? Much more easily. People who were separated by geography can now share information quickly and cheaply. Uh, we're seeing collaborations from activists in Hong Kong to activists in Ferguson, Right. Um, there are there's a Black Lives Matter movement in Paris um, and they network with activists from the U.S. And so we're seeing things that are really positive about the Internet. But also we're seeing a lot of really negative things. Right. We're seeing a lot of radicalization and uh, movements in the alt right. So the Internet's not good or bad. Um, and it's certainly not neutral. And we do have to pay attention to who owns the platforms, right? Um, so it is exactly like every other media uh, in in the world, right? It's it's the same as newspapers or news networks, right? Who owns them? Where are they circulating? Who are they targeting? It's it's hard to say that the internet's good or bad for democracy uh, because it's just more media. Well, you know, my big fear as a politician, because I know how this works at a political level, is that there's there's people with uh, PhDs in uh, sociology and psychology and and behavioral science and other things that are out there actively working on ways to manipulate the medium in order to. Uh, you know, not only attract, you've talked several times about the whole fundraising thing, but not only that, but actually to bring people over to their side. I can see that, you know, I, I can envision uh, meetings with people saying, you know, what can we say to people to motivate them to do whatever we want them to do, whether it's true or not. And I don't know how we, that, you know, that that really isn't a question. More, it's more of a statement. I don't know how we deal with that, but uh, I think we're making some lame attempts right now at trying to control Facebook and and other stuff. And we see, for example, 
today on right today on Meet the Press, they said one of the indications that Donald Trump uh, is thinking about running for for reelection in 2024 is he's trying to get back on Facebook, and he understands how important that is to his ability to you know uh, be successful. So. I leave yeah. that as a scary note. Let me say to you, because we're almost out of time, I can't believe that, but we are. Uh, is there anything that we asked you, anything you want to say that I didn't ask you, any statements you'd like to make? Hmm. Nothing specific comes to mind. Um, I do work a lot with misinformation, and I, I do also think um, – there's more, I think, optimism out there in local and community organizing. The, the national scale and thinking about technology on the national level uh, can really ruin your day. Uh, yeah, but if you get involved on the local level, um, you know, these social media accounts are attached to human beings. And so uh, it can feel really overwhelming when you're trying to be an online activist but when you actually get embedded in your own community or, you know, the community nearest to you working on the ground, it, it really um, changes your perspective. I think the national or the disconnected social media view of politics can really demoralize people. Um, but once you're on the ground in your neighborhood fighting for things, um, your perspective really shifts. Well, I think that's a great place to leave it. And I thank you so much for being on the show. And I can't wait to read your dissertation when you publish it. And we'll have to have you back when we can call you uh, Dr. Uh, Rochford. Um, you've been a great guest. And, and so thank you so much, Al, for being on the show. And, and best of luck with your, your research. And please uh, feel free to reach out to us here in Washington if there's anything we can do to help you with that. Um, you know, we leave Thanks the so show. Much. You're welcome. We leave the show every week with a, with a song. Uh, we usually dedicate it to our guests, and this one goes out to Elle. Uh, this is a classic, probably uh, popular before you were born, uh, Ms. Rochford. Uh, here's Bob Marley with Get Up, Stand Up. Thanks. We'll Thank see you. you next week. Bye.